Welcome to this special Oncology Update program featuring comments on presentations and posters from the 2007 American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting in Chicago. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. This program reviews data sets from a number of tumor types. And to begin, doctors Kathy Miller, Eric Weiner, and Steve Jones discuss ASCO breast cancer presentations, beginning with Dr. Miller, who reviewed an update of ECOG trial 1199 evaluating several approaches to the use of taxanes in the adjuvant setting. The E1199 study really asks a very practical question. If you are convinced from previous work that adding a taxane to adjuvant therapy is beneficial, is there an optimal way to do that? Is there a better taxane and is there a better taxane schedule? So the trial enrolled patients who were either lymph node positive or had high-risk disease but were node negative, and it had a two-by-two randomization to either paclitaxel or docetaxel and to either a weekly or an every-three-week schedule. So it ended up in four arms, but with the statistical power based on a two-by-two analysis. They actually did have pre-planned as a secondary endpoint a sort of stepwise comparison of the other three arms to the standard of the day, the every-three-week paclitaxel. This was a large trial of nearly 5,000 patients. It enrolled patients very quickly. And we got preliminary results about a year ago when the data monitoring committee suggested the results be released because it looked like further follow-up would not change the results. And I think there were a couple of important things that the study told us. First, from a clinical trial standpoint, I think we need to be careful about a two-by-two design. It's become a very popular design as a way of asking as many questions as possible in large trials that are going to be expensive to do. But that sort of analysis is only valid if there's no interaction between the two questions. And in this case, there was. So when we looked at the results, paclitaxel seemed to be more effective when given weekly, and docetaxel seemed to be more effective when given every three weeks. So if you lump those two together, the trial found no difference between the two taxanes in that first comparison and no difference between weekly or every three weeks. But when you look at the individual arms, you see a bit different story. The forearms compared had major differences in their tolerability. So if you looked at how many patients were able to actually receive all of the doses of therapy, it's about 95% for paclitaxel every three weeks, about 88 to 87 or so percent for either weekly paclitaxel or every three-week docetaxel, and only about 75% for the weekly docetaxel. The toxicity results were probably also not a big surprise for people in practice who have experience with these different regimens. The every three-week docetaxel was much harder on the blood counts, with about 50% of patients having grade 3 or 4 neutropenia, about 16% having a neutropenic fever, and some other non-neutropenic infections. But the arthralgias and myalgias were a bit tougher with the paclitaxel regimen Tearing, which is a major issue for a subset of patients, occurred in about 5% of patients in the weekly docetaxel arm and was very rare in the every three-week or the paclitaxel arms. Now, just to clarify about the every three-week docetaxel, that was sort of in the days before we realized that preemptive growth factors would be needed, specifically at 100 per meter squared. Correct. This study did not require growth factors, so it certainly allowed growth factors based on the ASCO guidelines. 
So it's likely that patients who were enrolled in the early days of this trial would not have received prophylactic growth factors. I suspect that a fair number of patients enrolled later in the course of the trial would have received prophylactic growth factors because that information was known at the time. But it wasn't required, and we don't have the data as to how many patients received growth factors. I guess that would call into question my view since there was so much neutropenic fever that maybe quite a few people didn't get growth factors, and could that have compromised really the efficacy findings? I think it probably didn't compromise the efficacy because when you look at their five-year disease-free survival results, there are two arms who did a bit better with disease-free survivals of about 81 to 81.5%, and two arms that did good but a little less well with disease-free survival of about 76%. And the two arms that did better were either weekly paclitaxel or every three-week docetaxel, and the two arms that did less well were every three-week paclitaxel or weekly docetaxel. Now, the arm where patients actually got less of the therapy, the perhaps ability to deliver therapy would have been limiting in the efficacy, was the weekly docetaxel and not the every three week. And they were not limited by myelosuppression that a growth factor would have helped. They were limited by some of the other toxicities of the weekly docetaxel. So how do you put this whole thing together from a practical clinical point of view? I think from a practical point of view, you can feel good if you're using either weekly paclitaxel or every three-week docetaxel. They're going to give you the same efficacy, but there are some major differences in toxicity that, in my opinion and in my practice, would favor the weekly paclitaxel arm. But I certainly couldn't fault someone who was using every three-week docetaxel previously to this study and see these results as confirming that that's a very reasonable and effective practice. Now, how would you compare the data presented and the conclusions for this presentation from the previous one that it was, I guess, about a year and a half ago at San Antonio? The primary endpoints, those two-by-two comparisons, really have not changed. There are more events in this presentation, so there is a bit more power in those secondary comparisons of comparing each arm to the every three-week paclitaxel. And some of the results that we saw before that looked quite suggestive that either weekly paclitaxel or every three-week docetaxel was superior in terms of efficacy to every three-week paclitaxel had not reached significance in the earlier analysis, and both of those comparisons are now significantly better. So with more results, I think this confirms the earlier suggestions of those data and just gives us more power and more certainty. What do you think the clinical relevance of this trial is today? I mean, you know, when we started the trials, I think before we had dose-dense results, for example, before we had a lot of things, what do you think this trial means today? So that's the one flaw in this trial that I think no one could have predicted at the time the trial was developed. When this trial was developed, the dose-dense trial was still going on. It was still enrolling patients. We had none of those results available. And the one schedule of paclitaxel that this trial doesn't include is the dose-dense every two-week schedule. If you actually look at the hazard ratios for weekly paclitaxel or every three-week docetaxel, compared to the every three-week paclitaxel arm, those hazard ratios look virtually identical to the hazard ratio for improvement that we saw in the CALGB 9741 trial that looked at dose dense. So cross-trial comparisons are always fraught with hazard, but if you do that, it would suggest that every two-week paclitaxel is a reasonable option, that weekly paclitaxel is a reasonable option, and every three-week docetaxel is a reasonable option, and you're likely to get the same efficacy 
from any of those three options, all of which are going to be slightly better than every three-week paclitaxel. And really, the differences between those three options are differences of the time that it takes to deliver the therapy, whether growth factors are going to be absolutely required or not, and what are the toxicities that you're going to be asking that patient to tolerate to get that benefit from her therapy. I guess someday we'll actually have the answer to the weekly versus Q2 week from the SWOG study that's out there. But I guess, meanwhile, this is pretty useful information. Another trial trying to sort of tease out the issue of optimal chemotherapy regimen was the Canadian study, the MA21, which was presented at this meeting in Abstract 550. Can you talk about that paper? So the Canadian trial had, in some ways, a slightly more straightforward design. It looked at three different chemotherapy options. The standard arm in this trial, or one of the standard arms in this trial, is the CEF regimen that had been developed in Canada. This is not just the FAC or CAF that American oncologists are used to with substituting epirubicin. This uses oral cyclophosphamide for days 1 through 15 and gives the epirubicin and 5-FU on both days 1 and 8 of each cycle and for a total of six cycles. There is another standard arm, if you will, the standard arm of the day in the U.S., the four cycles of AC followed by four cycles of paclitaxel on an every three-week basis. Again, this trial developed before we had any dose-dense or weekly data. And then an experimental arm looking at an epirubicin cyclophosphamide followed by paclitaxel arm. And in that, the real goal was trying to increase the intensity and shorten the interval for the EC. So the epirubicin dose was 120 milligrams per meter squared. The cyclophosphamide dose was 830 milligrams per meter squared. Patients got that therapy every two weeks for six cycles. That requires growth factors with both GCSF and erythropoietin. And after those six cycles, they then got four cycles of taxol on this classical every three-week schedule. What they saw is that the efficacy of either the CEF or the more dose-dense and dose-intense EC followed by paclitaxel regimen was better than AC followed by every three-week paclitaxel. Again, differences in the toxicity between those two arms, some differences in whether growth factors would be required, but very similar efficacy between those two arms. Direct comparison of those two experimental arms is going to be still ongoing because there's still not enough events to be certain in the analysis. But at this point, the efficacy of those two arms looks quite similar. And again, what do you think this means? I think this probably has more implications for people who practice in Canada than people who practice in the U.S. I think many Canadians had sort of shifted their thinking to using dose-dense AC followed by paclitaxel. That was not an arm in this study, but again, the hazard ratios of either CEF or the EC followed by paclitaxel are quite similar to the hazard ratios for improvement with just taking the AC paclitaxel and making it dose-dense. There's certainly some economic issues as well. The CEF does not require growth factors. It would be a bit less expensive for a total healthcare system because of that to be administered, and I think has challenged some of the folks in Canada sort of revisit whether CEF is a very reasonable option and might be preferable in their system. 
any sort of biologic or therapeutic principles that we learn from this trial? I mean, every time I look at this trial, I try to like, oh, well, you know, it seems almost like too obtuse to figure out. I think this is a trial that also was designed with a practical clinical question. And there was the Canadian standard of CEF, the American standard of the day of AC, followed by paclitaxel, and those had not been directly compared, as well as the questions of increasing doses and shortening intervals and whether that would improve the results. There are so many things different between these arms that I think it's very difficult to pick out a therapeutic principle that this trial really tells us about or that we could expand to other regimens. Kind of seems like we're moving away from the ABCD versus EFG, you know, kinds of trials like these first two that we're talking about to the more sort of flexible trials, trying to get stuff done a little bit quicker and maybe ask more interesting questions. Is that kind of your take? The 1199 trial was incredibly popular and enrolled patients very quickly. So it got done quickly. I'm not sure that it gives us particularly interesting results. It doesn't really tell us about the biology of the disease. So it doesn't really point a way forward. I think there still is a role for asking these practical questions. But personally, I'm much more excited about trials that really are asking about a therapeutic principle rather than a particular drug. And you're going to review a bunch of papers, I think, that fit into that category. And the first I wanted to ask you about is Abstract 561, which is a pilot study of adjuvant bevacizumab after neoadjuvant chemotherapy for high-risk breast cancer. This is a trial that was conceived by our colleagues at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Erica Mayer and Hal Burstein. And what they recognized is a patient population that we all see, that we all struggle with, and that no one knows what to do with. And those are patients who had received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, who still have residual disease at the time of their surgery. That's a patient population that we know from follow-up of neoadjuvant studies has a very high risk of recurrence. Some studies would suggest that their risk of distant recurrence is as high as 65 or 70%. And yet we have no other standard therapy other than radiation, if that's indicated, hormone therapy for those tumors that are hormone positive. There really is no data that additional chemotherapy would be helpful. And docs in practice have a hell of a time trying to figure out what to do with patients like this, because all we've had to do in the past has been chemotherapy, which most people aren't too excited about. We all have a hell of a time knowing what to do with these ladies, and I have shifted my own thinking about them over the years. I used to be much more likely to give these ladies additional chemotherapy of some sort with agents that they had not had, usually CMF, with the thought that they have such high risk that if anyone is going to benefit from additional chemotherapy, these might be the ladies. I have shifted my thinking more to the idea that these ladies have proven that traditional cytotoxic therapy is not particularly effective for their disease and that it's more likely that I'm just adding toxicity rather than adding benefit. I guess the other issue is that if the tumor is ER positive, you do have hormone therapy, but this gets to be really problematic when they're triple negative. Exactly. Those patients who have ER positive disease, we comfort ourselves with the knowledge that the hormone therapy is overall going to give them the greatest benefit, and they've not had that yet. For the patients that are HER2 positive, we now comfort ourselves with the idea that they'll be continuing Herceptin, and that may have some additional benefit to them. So perhaps we worry about those folks a little bit less than the folks with the triple negative disease. But really, all of those patients have a very high risk of recurrence. So this pilot study was focused specifically on that group of patients, and it had a couple of goals. 
first was to look at the feasibility and the safety of adding bevacizumab into the treatment of those patients. We also thought this was an ideal setting to look at some biologic markers, both of minimal residual disease and risk of recurrence that might in the future help us select patients for additional therapies in that situation, as well as some markers that may tell us about the angiogenic activity of the therapy and whether we were really having a biologic effect in these ladies who didn't have disease that really could be identified or measured. So the trial is actually still going on. It currently has three cohorts of patients. The first cohort of 40 patients received just bevacizumab for a total of a year. The second cohort received bevacizumab for a year with six months of the metronomic cyclophosphamide and methotrexate that the Dana-Farber group had developed. And then there is a third cohort that is receiving bevacizumab for a year in addition to six cycles of capecitabine. The first two cohorts have actually finished enrollment. Most of the patients, in fact, all of the patients in cohort B are still being treated. None of those patients have finished the year of therapy. And the third cohort is still enrolling patients. So what we were able to present was merely the early safety data in that first cohort. I think the good news is that we really saw no unusual toxicities. This was quite tolerable for patients. And we were right in that this was a high-risk group of patients because with follow-up of less than a year, 15% of these patients have already had evidence of relapse of their disease. We don't have the results of any of the correlative studies yet, and we all think that actually might be the most important thing that comes out of this study. The other most important thing that we hope will come out of this study is a randomized trial exactly in this patient population to really try and look at the efficacies of these therapies. Now, you're a co-author on this paper. Did you treat yourself some of these patients? I have treated a lot of these patients. As you can imagine, this is a trial that has been very popular in our referring physician network because we have physicians who use a lot of neoadjuvant therapy, so this is a situation they find themselves in quite frequently. I'm curious how the patients responded to the therapy in terms of quality of life, particularly the second arm. The first arm, as you said, was Bev alone, but also the metronomic arm. How was that for the patients? Most of our patients have tolerated this quite well. We do think we're seeing a bit more fatigue and a bit more arthralgias with the bevacizumab than has been reported in any of the previous bevacizumab trials. I think that's partly because this is bevacizumab alone in women who don't have active disease who otherwise would not be on therapy. So those subtle differences become a little bit more apparent. In none of those patients did this require them to stop therapy or that they considered a major problem, but it is certainly something that they noticed. We've had only very mild issues with myelosuppression in the second cohort that has added the metronomic therapy, a little bit more fatigue in that second cohort, but at this point, nothing that has required patients to stop therapy or really limited their activity. Just to branch off a little bit, have you utilized the metronomic BEV regimen, which as you mentioned, was reported by Hal Burstein of San Antonio a while back in your actual practice off-study in metastatic disease? Yes, I have in several patients. And in that setting as well, we found it to be very well tolerated myelosuppression that is quite mild, rarely requires any dose interruptions or adjustments, and never requires growth factors. What has been nice about that regimen for patients is the lack of other toxicities in that it doesn't require or induce alopecia. It has very little trouble with nausea. It does not induce neuropathy. 
So most recently, we've used this in a patient of mine who spends quite a lot of time traveling. She's retired, is very active, and the ability to only pop into an infusion center once every three weeks as compared to weekly is really a big difference for her. So I've got to ask you, in that patient, for example, had that patient had Bev before? She had not. Hmm. Would you ever use it in a situation where somebody maybe had Bev with chemo and had a great response maybe down the line? I would not consider continuing bevacizumab after progression at this point. So I think the question as to whether there would be additional benefit by continuing Bev after initial progression or not is a very important question, but that is not a treatment that I'm willing to embark upon outside of a trial designed to ask that question. I guess I was thinking about maybe not necessarily continuing it, but maybe somebody who had previously had it, maybe went through a couple other therapies and then you know come back to it. I wouldn't. I have used the metronomic cyclophosphamide and methotrexate in some of those patients, but not with either continuing or resuming the BEV. I got to ask you one other question because Anak in practice, who was presenting a case to me that we were going to use one of our recordings and mentioned that a patient, I don't even remember whether it was colon or breast or lung, had gotten BEV and gotten a rash. And I hadn't heard that. And he said, oh, yeah, Avastin can cause a rash. Does it cause a rash? It probably can. If it does, it is exceedingly rare. And if this is someone who got BEV in combination with paclitaxel, it's much more likely the paclitaxel. Paclitaxel, particularly in the weekly schedule, can cause a radiation recall dermatitis. This is not the radiation recall dermatitis that we're used to thinking of in patients who got therapeutic radiation, but the cumulative effects of a lifetime of sun exposure. So this has been a much more significant issue in some of my Indiana farm wives who have spent their entire lifetime working outside, who when treated with the weekly paclitaxel had quite a significant rash that then gradually calmed down. It had the dermatologist see several of those ladies and get biopsies. And when they called me to say, it's just a radiation recall, and I said, but they didn't have radiation. They reminded me of the radiation that we are all exposed to. Interesting. So getting back to this issue of post-neoadjuvant therapy, when do you think these data are going to be spun into a big randomized study? We are working on that now. Hal and Erica have been working hard on the design of that study, and the design is still not set. The design will likely be a compromise between the folks who are not convinced that adding additional chemotherapy would be helpful and the folks who feel strongly that additional chemotherapy needs to be given or it needs to at least be in the trial. So the design will definitely include bevacizumab for a year. The chemotherapy will be capecitabine since that is the most active agent available that we know of for patients who've had an anthracycline and a taxane and is still typically not included in their neoadjuvant therapy. So it's not just additional therapy with something they've already had. Whether that will be a two-by-two design so that there is a control group that does not get additional therapy or a three-arm trial looking at one or the other or both is not quite set yet. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the data that came out of ASCO about capecitamine and bevacizumab. But one final question about this new adjuvant thing. I had heard sort of informal discussion. I'm not sure whether it's for sure going to happen that the NSABP was thinking about looking at the same population and considering looking at sunitinib. Is that the case? And what do you think about that idea? I have heard that as well. And the last I heard, that trial was not going to go forward. But we are not NSABP members. So I'm never certain that my rumor mill on NSABP issues is up to date. What do you think about that concept? Because I thought it was kind of interesting. I think it's a very similar concept to this pilot trial. 
and has the advantages of being a very high-risk patient population. So from a trial standpoint, the trial can be smaller with fewer numbers of patients and shorter follow-up and still expect to have enough events to really give you an answer. What do we know about sunitinib and breast cancer? We know a little. We have the results of a phase two trial of sunitinib monotherapy in patients with very heavily pretreated disease. Its overall response rate was about 11% and about another 5 or 6% of patients with staple disease for at least six months or more. In that trial, three of the seven responding patients had triple negative disease, which we thought was interesting and worth pursuing. So there is an ongoing randomized trial in patients with triple negative disease comparing sunitinib monotherapy to one of several standard chemotherapy options that physicians and patients can pick from a menu of acceptable choices. We also have results of a trial combining sunitinib with paclitaxel using the weekly schedule as initial therapy for metastatic disease. That is definitely an active combination, and that combination is now being directly compared to paclitaxel plus bevacizumab in a large randomized phase three trial. That phase three effort started enrolling patients late last year and continues to enroll patients quite well. There are also some smaller phase two efforts looking at combinations with trastuzumab and the HER2 population and with other chemotherapy agents. But I think the triple negative trial and the large randomized phase three are really the two key trials that will help us figure out where this agent should fit. Let's go on to paper number 1011, looking at lapatinib and paclitaxel compared to paclitaxel as first-line treatment for metastatic breast cancer. This is a study that had an interesting design. The early work with this compound had suggested that lapatinib was going to be most effective in tumors that were HER2 positive. There had always been this question as to whether it would have activity in tumors that were HER2 negative as well because of its inhibition of the EGFR pathway. After this trial had been designed and was well on its way, we got the results of a phase two study of lapatinib monotherapy in patients who were HER2 negative and saw no responses, which I think really raised the question as to whether we should really think of lapatinib as a HER2 inhibiting agent. With the caveat being that that phase two study was in very heavily pretreated patients, so perhaps there could still be some activity in HER2 negative patients by inhibiting EGFR. So this study looked at paclitaxel alone, or in this case paclitaxel with a placebo, using at the time the only approved dose and schedule of paclitaxel, the 175 every three weeks, or paclitaxel with lapatinib, specifically in a group of patients who were either HER2 negative or in whom the HER2 status had not been tested. This was a large multinational trial that enrolled a little over 500 patients, nicely matched for all of the things that might have been important. And the overall results found no difference in any of the efficacy parameters with the addition of lapatinib. When they looked at the response rates, there was a slight improvement, 25% with paclitaxel alone to 35%. That was a significant improvement in response rates and clinical benefit, but duration of response the same, overall median time to progression, virtually identical. 
because this was a large trial and a certain proportion of the patients had tumors that had not been tested for HER2 locally, they did collect the samples from as many patients as possible, and they were able to get blocks from almost all of the patients in this trial and then test them for HER2 and found that about 15 to 20% of the patients in this trial actually did have HER2-positive disease. So they were then able to look at the efficacy results in the now known to be HER2-positive population and the population confirmed to be negative. And when you do that, you find that virtually all of the improvements in response rate are in the HER2-positive population. Response rates in the HER2-negative population were 24 and 31%, statistically no different between those, compared to 36% in the HER2-positive population, increased to 60% in the HER2-positive population. So at the end of the day, I think this is a trial that perhaps unintentionally confirmed our suspicions that lipatinib is very effective in patients with HER2-positive disease and really doesn't add anything if your tumors are HER2-negative. The next paper we wanted to talk about is one that you and George Sledge presented, Abstract 1013, Safety and Efficacy of Capecitamine Plus BEV as First-Line Therapy in Metastatic Breast Cancer. That's the so-called Excalibur study. A study with a great name and results that are both disappointing but challenge some of our assumptions. This was a trial really trying to build on the results of our two previous bevacizumab studies. So we had studied this combination in highly refractory patients, found improvements in response rate, but no improvements in progression-free survival. We saw much greater improvements in our first-line study with paclitaxel, and our main thought about the difference between those two results was that this was a difference in patient population and that perhaps if you use the capecitabine combination as initial chemotherapy, we expected to see similar efficacy results to the paclitaxel-bevacizumab combination and thought that would then give patients and their clinicians some additional options for first-line therapy to really allow them to start to individualize the chemotherapy based on all of those patient factors. So this trial used the capecitabine-bevacizumab combination, slightly lower starting dose of capecitabine than our previous trial, but 2,000 milligrams per meter squared, so the dose of capecitabine that most of us would start with outside of a trial basis, and essentially used the E2100 eligibility criteria. First, chemotherapy for metastatic disease, previous adjuvant chemotherapy, including taxane-containing adjuvant chemotherapy allowed. But the only difference in the eligibility criteria is that this trial required measurable disease, whereas the E2100 trial did not specifically require measurable disease. It was a reasonable size phase two trial that enrolled about 106 patients. This was definitely a safe regimen. That slight decrease in the dose of capecitabine had a pretty profound impact on the rates of grade three and four hand-foot syndrome and diarrhea. So this was even better tolerated than we had reported previously. But the efficacy results were both surprising and disappointing to us. So the overall response rate was quite healthy at about 38%. But the overall progression-free survival was only 5.7 months. So about half the progression-free survival that we had reported in the E2100 trial. So this has really challenged me to rethink how much of the difference between those two trials was the difference in the patient population, which I do still think is important, and how much of this may have been some unique synergy with paclitaxel and bevacizumab that we were able to capitalize on in the E2100 trial that you just don't get with the combination of capecitabine and bevacizumab. 
And I guess the other thing that I was thinking about is, I don't know what your take is from the colon literature, but I sort of come away thinking that 5-FU plus bevacizumab seems like it's a pretty good regimen in colon cancer. It certainly is. And there are perhaps two answers to that. One is that breast cancer isn't colon cancer, so we can't make that leap. Absolutely. The other, though, is there are some previously reported first-line results with capecitabine in breast cancer as initial chemotherapy. And they have typically reported response rates of about 25% and median progression-free survivals of about four months. So I think it is very possible that this combination really is better than the capecitabine alone. But it certainly does not seem to give you the progression-free survival results that we saw with the paclitaxel and bevacizumab. So this has actually made me much more interested in the results of the ribbon trial, which is also looking at bevacizumab added to one of several first-line chemotherapy regimens, one of which is taxane-based, one of which is capecitabine. From looking at the results that we have so far, I'm expecting that that trial will find improvements in the response and progression-free survival in the patients treated with capecitabine and Bev compared to capecitabine alone, but that perhaps that's not the optimal chemotherapy bevacizumab combination to get the greatest benefit for our patients. Now, do we have any other data about Bev and capecitabine as first-line therapy right now? Not that I know of. The ribbon trial is still going on. It has completed enrollment except for the capecitabine group, which they had expanded to try and increase the power of that particular arm of the study. So we haven't seen any of the results from that trial yet. Maybe we can move on to another issue, which is nabpaclitaxel. And Bill Gratishar presented some more data from the same study he presented at San Antonio. This is abstract 1032 a randomized comparison of weekly or every three-week NAB compared to Q3-week docetaxel as first-line therapy metastatic disease. Can you talk about that? This is a randomized phase two trial asking, I think, really a couple of questions. Their registration trial had compared every three-week NAB paclitaxel to every three-week paclitaxel. And while it found a significant improvement, I think there was a little skepticism and a little bit of not knowing what to do with that data. Because by that point, I don't think really anybody was using every three-week paclitaxel. The people had either gravitated towards every three-week docetaxel as being better or weekly paclitaxel as being better. So their registration trial essentially showed that they were better than something that nobody used because we'd already decided it was less effective. So this trial looked at comparing NAB paclitaxel every three weeks, slightly different dose than in their registration trial, to either docetaxel given every three weeks or with two weekly arms of NAB paclitaxel. So trying to cover both bases. Is weekly better? Are we really better than docetaxel? To, I think, answer some of the questions raised by the results of their registration trial. For a randomized phase two trial, this is a reasonable size effort with about 75 patients in each arm, though that still leaves it fairly underpowered to really do comparisons between the arms. But there still was certainly a suggestion that the NAB paclitaxel on a weekly schedule gave you greater response rates and improvements in progression-free survival compared to either every three-week nabpaclitaxel or every three-week docetaxel. The doses of the nabpaclitaxel that they used were either 100 per meter squared weekly for three out of four weeks or 150 milligrams per meter squared weekly for three out of every four weeks. And there is a bit more myelosuppression and neurotoxicity with the higher dose. What is your take on what this means in terms of clinical practice right now? 
if I were going to use NAB paclitaxel, this is the schedule that I would use. Unfortunately, I think there are still issues of cost and reimbursement, and this is still a pretty modest improvement compared to weekly paclitaxel. And I think that will probably still continue to limit its uptake. How much of a clinical advantage do you think it is in terms of not having used pre-medications or the shorter infusion time? So I think it varies a bit from patient to patient. Since the nabpaclitaxel is not formulated in cremophore, it doesn't need pre-medications at all, other than perhaps for nausea, but not for any of the allergic reactions. So it doesn't need the Benadryl, it doesn't need the steroids, and it's infused over 30 minutes instead of over an hour. The difference in infusion time is actually much bigger when you look at the every three-week schedules where paclitaxel is given over three hours. In my clinic, the difference between an hour in an infusion chair and 30 minutes in an infusion chair is actually not as big as you might expect because there are so many fixed times of getting into the clinic, getting blood drawn, getting lab results, and all of those things that don't change. So the total time that the patient spends is not cut in half, as you might think, by cutting the infusion time in half. We also have become very aware of the toxicities that some patients experience from the pre-medications. And we have known from a lot of observational data of patients treated with the taxanes that if they're going to have an infusion reaction, it's almost always on their first and second infusion. Fusion. So we have become quite comfortable at our center at really decreasing the pre-medications that patients receive with their weekly paclitaxel if they've gotten their first couple of infusions without any difficulty. One of my favorite questions has been if cost and reimbursement issues were identical for NAB and just regular cremophore paclitaxel, what would you do? I think if the cost and reimbursement issues were identical and they had come on the scene closer to each other, most of us would be using the NAB paclitaxel. I think even if you removed cost and reimbursement, I think many would still have the questions as to whether the improvement in efficacy was really worth shifting a well-established practice. There also are concerns about increased rates of neuropathy that are still present in my mind that unfortunately we don't have the data from the NAB paclitaxel to really address. There were a couple other papers I want to ask you about that relate to NAB. One was Abstract 1053, a Phase two study looking at NAB plus capecitabine in first-line therapy metastatic disease. This Phase two study is also an important study, particularly for patients who need combination chemotherapy. The initial combination of docetaxel and capecitabine improved response rates and time to progression and overall survival in that initial study, but at the cost of substantial toxicity that I think made many people question whether the benefits of that regimen were worth a substantial increase in toxicity. Since then, there have been some Phase two studies looking at paclitaxel in combination with capecitabine. None of them randomized to really see if you got the improved benefits, but they reported response rates and progression-free survival that looked awfully similar to the docetaxel capecitabine results, but with a lot less of the toxicity. So I think this is a trial that is actually important to give us safety data and assurance that if this is a regimen that you like, that you think has been helpful for your patients, that you can use the NAB paclitaxel instead of either docetaxel or the cremophore paclitaxel, and you're likely to get very similar results and with less toxicity. I know a lot of docs in practice use that capecitabine paclitaxel regimen. Bill Gratishaw reported on it, Joe William Blum reported on it. And, and you know, granted, most people don't use combination therapy much, at least combination chemotherapy. When they do do it, I hear a lot of people using that regimen. You wonder whether or not this might be even easier on the patient. 
You know, their toxicity data looks quite similar to the toxicities that Bill had reported. You know, these agents do still cause neurotoxicity. You still have some of the hand foot issues with the capecitabine. There is still some myelosuppression from the taxane component, but these toxicities look quite similar to the toxicities that Bill and Joanne had reported and still look substantially less than had been reported with the original docetaxel capecitabine regimen. So I certainly would have no qualms about people using this combination or shifting their practice if it had been to use the cremophore paclitaxel with capecitabine to now using the NAB paclitaxel with capecitabine. And the final NAB paper I wanted to ask you about was 1104, that kind of more forward-looking in terms of looking at three different dosing schedules of NAB plus bevacizumab as first-line therapy in HER2-negative tumors. This is a trial that I was actually surprised that they reported. This is an ongoing randomized phase two study, again, in the first-line setting. In this trial, everyone gets bevacizumab, and they're randomized to either nabpaclitaxel at the every three-week dose, exactly as had been used in their registration study, or since this is a trial led by our colleagues at Memorial, make that dose dense, make it every two weeks, but with exactly the same dose. Or use the weekly schedule, again, a third weekly dose. So our previous study that we discussed used either 100 or 150. This study uses 130. And I have no idea where they came up with that intermediate weekly dose. The trial is still very much ongoing. There are only about 25 or 30 patients who have been treated in each of these arms. What they have reported is predominantly their safety results, and that really was the focus of this study. Overall, all of the arms seemed quite well tolerated. There were a bit more dose reductions needed in the patients who received the dose-dense or the weekly schedule compared to the every three-week schedule. Dose-dense definitely needed growth factor use, but overall, all three of the regimens certainly looked quite tolerable and that they were not going to be limited by toxicities. I was actually a bit surprised and a little disturbed, shall we say, at presenting efficacy results of an ongoing trial and how that might influence results and bias. Their efficacy results also at this point look fairly similar with very small numbers, only about 20 patients in each group, and response rates ranging from 19 to 38%. Interestingly, the dose-dense arm was the 19, and that was not highlighted in their results, but the efficacy results are so early that I think they probably should not have been reported and this should have really focused on safety and toxicity. Do you think that this is a regimen in any of these schedules or any other schedule, basically the issue of NAB plus BEV that should be considered in the non-protocol situation? Well, let's say, for example, somebody diabetic really going to have a major problem with steroids. In general, I would not make this leap outside of the protocol setting until we have some more information from this ongoing phase two trial, particularly from the efficacy results. Especially looking at our experience with the Excalibur trial, I fear that people have assumed that the results from E2100 could be easily generalized and that you could add bevacizumab to any first-line chemotherapy that you wanted and you would get the same improvements and the same results and the same 11.3 months median progression-free survival. I think our experience with the Excalibur trial should be a huge caution that that assumption is almost certainly false. And I'm not nearly smart enough to know which regimens might give you results that are in the same ballpark as our E2100 trial. 
I think this is a very reasonable trial. And if in this what's planned to be a fairly large randomized phase two study shows similar response and similar progression-free survival, then I think that would be a very reasonable substitution. Until then, I'm a bit squeamish about that. And I guess you can see that they're heading towards, hopefully, I guess at some point, maybe even moving this into the adjuvant setting. Let's talk about another memorial paper that gets into the issue of scheduling and modeling, and that's the paper by Maria Theodulo, Abstract 1045, looking at what we've been hearing about for a while now, which is the issue of a novel Cape cytobine schedule based on the Norton-Simon hypothesis. This is really based on the dose-dense hypothesis, and a lot of people would have already made the argument that cytobine is ultimately dose-dense because you get it every day for 14 days. But it was also partly based on the clinical experience that many patients start to experience toxicity, particularly towards the end of that second week. It then requires you to stop their therapy. And what most people have typically done is just hold the last several days of planned treatment and patients still get their week off. And then they start a new cycle exactly as originally planned, which would actually then decrease the dose density of the regimen because you're giving patients a longer time off. So Larry Norton and his colleagues wondered whether that two-week-on and one-week-off schedule was really the optimal schedule and perhaps the most dose-dense schedule of capecitabine that could be developed. So they went initially to the laboratory and looked at different schedules and a bunch of xenograft models and suggested that a schedule that was a bit different with seven days on and seven days off might actually allow you to get more of the doses in and be similarly, if not more efficacious, but with less toxicity because patients wouldn't get the same cumulative experience. So they have now proceeded to go back to the clinic with initially a phase one and then plans to expand a dose cohort to a phase two size. Their phase one trial used very similar phase one designs of small numbers of patients followed for a time. And if toxicity was not a problem, doses would be escalated. They also used sort of a flat dosing scheme. So patients initially started at 1,500 milligrams BID. They then went to 1,500 and 2,000, a dose cohort at 2,000 BID. And their current dose cohort, or the last one that they reported, was at 2,000 and 2,500. So a bit higher total dose than most of us would ever give a patient if we were planning on giving them 14 days of therapy. And thus far, that has been quite well tolerated. They have not yet identified a maximum tolerated dose. Really no way to know if this is going to be similar Similarly efficacious or more efficacious than the more traditional dose and schedules that we have all been used to. But certainly it has allowed them to escalate the dose without increasing the toxicity that you would expect to see if you were planning more continuous therapy. What was interesting to me is that they didn't actually do any pharmacokinetics in this study. And I stopped by to ask them about that because one hypothesis is that bioavailability might be limited so that you could just, once you're at limits of bioavailability, you keep increasing the doses with without seeing increased toxicity because you're not actually increasing drug exposure. And they have not done any pharmacokinetics to really address that question. I'm going to guess you think this is probably also not ready for prime time non-protocol use? 
Yes, though I must admit I have done so. Hmm. I have done lots of things with capecitabine. I always start patients with the planned two weeks on therapy, one week off therapy at a dose of 2,000 milligrams per meter squared. We typically only use the 500 milligram tablets to make things easy and avoid potential dosing errors with patients. But we have been fairly liberal once patients have started with that dose and schedule and we get a sense of if the drug is working for them and what are their toxicities. So based on the timing of their toxicities, I have some patients who do take seven days on and seven days off. I have some patients who take 14 days on and 14 days off. I have some patients who take it Monday through Friday and take the weekends off and do that continuously. And I have one patient who takes it Monday through Thursday and takes the three-day weekend off and does that continuously. But we've really only made those adjustments in patients who've started with the original dose and schedule, who appear to be responding and are going to be continuing on the therapy as a way to try to minimize their toxicity. The last paper I wanted to ask you about, and maybe just to kind of give us the bottom line in terms of, you know, sort of what you took away from this, because this study is really interesting. It's been published already in the JCO, and more data was presented from it. And that's Sandy Swain's paper that looked at bevacizumab in patients with inflammatory breast cancer. What did they report here? This was a small but I think very important neoadjuvant trial, a total of 21 patients with inflammatory breast cancer who got a single cycle of bevacizumab monotherapy and then got anthracycline-based therapy and docetaxel added to bevacizumab for the remainder of their neoadjuvant therapy. They then went to surgery. This really was a golden opportunity to both see what bevacizumab does by itself to inflammatory disease and to look at a bunch of biomarkers with serial biopsies, serial blood sampling, and the MRI data that they've reported previously. So just to remind folks, this was an active combination. About two-thirds of the patients had an objective response. About a quarter were stable. Only two patients actually progressed during this therapy. Patients noticed palpable and visible changes to their inflammatory breast within a few days of their first dose of bevacizumab monotherapy, where it seemed less engorged, it was less tender, it was less red. And they have looked at a variety of potential markers, both whether baseline factors might predict benefit and response, as well as changes in markers. They looked at the tumor expression of VEGF-A, which is the VEGF isoform that bevacizumab binds. Those patients who had higher baseline levels of VEGF-A were more likely to respond and have an objective response to this therapy. They also saw a very consistent decrease in phosphorylation of the VEGF receptor 2 or the KDR receptor from baseline to after therapy. I was initially a bit surprised that decrease in VEGF receptor 2 phosphorylation didn't predict response, but then you have to realize that most of these patients actually did respond and benefit to this therapy, so that analysis is perhaps a bit underpowered. They looked at some other traditional tumor factors, including proliferative index with key 67 tumor grade, estrogen receptor, HER2. None of those things really predicted response to this therapy, although, again, it's a small sample of patients, so unless there was a huge association, that's probably not going to be the definitive final word. 
what I think will be most exciting to us is that they collected those serial biopsies for gene array analysis to not only look for potential predictors of response and benefit or resistance for that matter, but also to look at what does this drug actually do to the tumor? What changes in the tumor when you block VEGFA with this agent and what that might teach us about biology? So those results are still being analyzed, and I think there will be a lot more important data coming from this study. So this is perhaps the study in my recent memory that has given us the most useful data from the smallest number of patients. And from my sort of non-molecular mind, the one thing I sort of took away from this in the past, and I think this kind of reinforces it, is that the effect of BEV is not just on the stroma, but maybe directly on the tumor. There definitely is a suggestion of that. Initially, the focus with BEV had been entirely on the endothelial cells. Turns out that was really our bias in the fact that no one had looked for whether the VEGF receptors were on the tumor because we didn't think they would be there. We thought they had no business there. There's now very good data from cell lines, from animal models, and from human tumor samples that many breast cancers do express the VEGF receptors. They're phosphorylated, so they're definitely signaling. I think it's still an open question as to how much of the activity of bevacizumab that we see comes from inhibiting signaling of the VEGF receptors on the tumor cells compared to on the endothelium and stroma. And I suspect it's probably a bit of both, which is a much more complicated system than we initially had envisioned. Any reason to think that inflammatory breast cancer is going to be fundamentally biologically different than other kinds of breast cancer in that regard? Well, we actually have some gene array data that says it is fundamentally different. There are some gene array studies that have looked at biopsies of patients at time of diagnosis and compared gene expression data from patients with inflammatory compared to non-inflammatory disease and have found some significant differences in the gene expressions. Interestingly, one of the genes that was highly different was the VEGF-C, which is involved in lymphangiogenesis and is not inhibited by bevacizumab. So it is somewhat of a different disease, whether it's truly a different disease or just a different shade of the disease that we're more familiar with. I don't think we know yet. But this study, I think, will continue to give us more information about the biology of inflammatory disease in bevacizumab that will point us other ways forward.